This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. This is a special bonus episode of the podcast. This October marks five years since the news broke in The New York Times and in The New Yorker of Harvey Weinstein's appalling history of sexual misconduct in the equally shocking ways that his victims were silenced for so long. That story opened the floodgates of the Me Too movement. The reckoning that followed transformed workplaces and upended entire industries. But Me Too went beyond the workplace, questioning ideas about sex, consent, and power relationships more broadly. Five years on, storylines inspired by Me Too have shown up in films, books, television, and most recently in the movie Tar, starring Kate Blanchett. Three of The New Yorker's critics got together recently to look at whether or how Me Too has changed the cultural landscape. Here's Alexandra Schwartz, Vincent Cunningham, and Nomi Fry. Alex kicks off the conversation. So, Vincent, Nomi, let's try to think back, if we even can. You know, what, what were some of the first Me Too storylines, you know, as opposed to stories, just mm-hmm. cultural processings, um, that you remember really making a splash after Me Too started. You know, it's really interesting. I was thinking about this, and um, I, w- I, I have to say that what I remember from the first months, and even I want to say like the first year or two, you know, post Me Too, is that cultural production was occluded by the actual stories mm. or like took a backseat let's say, there was such uh, an emphasis on the on the real stories, rightly so, that I can't totally look back and like, oh, okay, this was like the defining text. So what would you say if I were to trigger your memory a bit <laughs> and tell you that Cat Person, the infamous short story that our very own magazine published um, around the story of a young woman who dates a kind of slightly older deadbeat guy um, and all that ensues there was published in December of 2017, a mere two months after Me Too began. Unbelievable. 
It's pretty shocking. I mean, I would say, you know, just speaking, practically speaking, or like chronologically speaking, we know that probably the lead time to that story preceded, you know, the revelations of October 2017, because it came out in December. So, of course, this was like in the works. Like, it's not like, oh, this is a response to Me Too, right? right? And one thing that was that is interesting and that I remember about Cat Person coming out is that when Cat Person came out, people kept calling it an essay. Like, people didn't <gasps> oh. remember. Like, they didn't re- realize that it was like a fundamental category error that they, like, didn't realize that they were reading a short story. That's really and interesting. And I think that has to do with all kinds of things, whether people ever read short stories in their real lives anymore, all kinds of things. But it was also this, in the middle of this yes. huge cultural upheaval, it had the feel and texture of a kind of, like, testimonial. And I'll never forget, first of all, but by the way, t- talking about, like, sense memories, mm. that the, awful, the the awful mouths in that photograph will, will live with me forever. The There's photograph, a photograph captured something <laughs> zeitgeisty. To hell. remind everyone, it was a picture of two mouths in extreme close-up kissing. A soft female mouth and a bearded, rough male mouth. Yeah. I think it was a te- it, the textural and color. juxtaposition yeah. did something there. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating, baffling, um, hard to reckon with itself about Me Too is kind of what is or was it? In one sense, it's a movement, and we're used to calling it a movement, but it's also a lens. And so one of the feelings that I remember a lot from the initial moment was, of course, the revelations were shocking in their specificity, Mm -hmm. in their number, um, most of all in the fact that they were being made publicly – but a story like Cat Person, to me, um, a lot of these things weren't, uh, you know, the fact that um, bad sexual behavior was going on or the fact that uh, power came into sex and into mm-hmm. the workplace mm-hmm. through gender, sex, et cetera. Mm-hmm. These things were not surprising to me revelations, but Me Too gave a new lens to look yeah. at them. So in some ways, maybe that was helpful. Yes. That it, it – it, you know, it, it could provide a kind of definition around a work yes. like Cat Person or, or, or yes. others. And in other ways, it there's something so totalizing and sweeping about it. This is a Me Too era story. And p- potentially flattening. Yeah, because because looking at it now, to Vincent's point about people calling it an essay, I think that does possibly have something to do with the fact that in the immediate wake of Me Too, uh, the real, you know, the 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 reality gained – you know, mm-hmm. kind of the the upper hand, the the true stories, women's testimonials, rather than um, a kind of potentially more like gray area or oblique or or subjective, uh, you know, right. account that even women authors might tell. Totally. Well, yeah, this makes me want to ask you both, you know, moving forward a bit from that first moment, you know, getting into that 2019 or 2020 or mm-hmm. 2021 mm-hmm. onward moment that you're talking about, you know, as more time has passed, have there been examples of works of art that, it, you know, address Me Too or let's say the circle around the themes of Me Too that you have found successful? I mean, I really like The Assistant that came out in 2019. I believe it's a movie directed and written by Kitty Green. It's fictionalized, but it seems to be based on the life of, like, an assistant, a young female assistant who works at a Weinstein-like, at a Miramax-like company Mm -hmm. um, as the assistant to a Weinstein-like figure, a sort of big, scary boss 
was doing all manners of nefarious things. And uh, it basically describes a day in her life. Okay, let's bear with me here. So a new assistant arrives from out of town and she's being put up at the mark. Mm-hmm. And your boss at some point left the office. To meet her at the mark, yes. Yes, according apparently to the jokes of the office. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's it? That's why you came in. Uh, and and I, I found an earring in the office today. An earring? By his couch. And a hair tie on the foil last week. Oh. Forgive me, but are you often um, cleaning things off his floor? I mean, we have a janitorial crew, right? I'm supposed to tidy up. Um, and, and a girl came and, and uh, she picked the earring up and I, I've never seen her before and it was hers. Okay. Sorry. The interesting thing about this movie is that um, the boss is never uh, pictured. You hear his voice hmm. uh, and his sort of hectoring you know, demanding, like, horrible mm. um, presence, but you never see him. It's just you feel his um, all-pervasive presence. And I thought that was incredibly effective because it, it it showed how that kind of power and that kind of oppression works on the day-to-day, you know, uh, not in, like, the apex of the most harrowing moments, but just in the the banality of evil, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. yeah. Vincent, did you see The Assistant? I didn't. Even though it stars one of your favorite actresses, Julia Garner? I she love was, Julia Garner. She was great in that movie. Um, was she? You got to complete the canon, the Garner <laughs> canon. The Garnerverse? Yeah, the I Garnerverse. Need, need to... Step step yeah. into the Garnerverse. But what it sounds like to me is, you know, it's so interesting because it's like, Me Too had, had started before 2017. It was, uh, Tarana Burke started it. And it was of course. Just a, it was about like mm-hmm. sexual assault survivors saying, like, you know, this has happened to me, too, yes. and on a sort of generic level. But the height of Me Too as we know it, the classic Me Too setup is a sort of workplace environment where someone has overweening power, and their power is felt even when they're not there, you know? But it's interesting because something like The Assistant is like a dark parody of something like The Devil Wears Prada. Okay, first of all, you and I answer the phones. The phone must be answered every single time it rings. Calls roll to voicemail and she gets very upset. If I'm not here... Andrea, Andrea, you are chained to that desk. Well, what if I need to... What? No. One time an assistant left the desk because, you know, she sliced her hand open with a letter opener and Miranda missed Lagerfeld just before he boarded a 17-hour flight to Australia. She now works at TV Guide. The movies already have this setup of, like... I've apprenticed myself to you, and like, and, and it's I'm some in some ways abject and like abasing sure. myself before you. Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting that 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 setup mm-hmm. is first of all the precondition for lots of art that we like, and therefore like makes us go back and think about a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But also like a lot of the art that we like also has that scenario in it that can be then totally kind of working up. girl or you know even like light comedy fair, light comedic fair. 
I, you know, I, I had this experience of recently rereading one of my very favorite memoirs, I'm with the Band by Pamela DeBar, mm-hmm. about the life of a, a groupie in the 60s. And uh, it's a it's a light, pretty light book, you know, light, fun, tons of gossip, tons of like sexual intrigue, a lot of famous people stuff, you know. But a lot of it, there's a lot of stuff there where she talks about like almost being raped or like being certainly ta- being taken advantage of and mistreated by sure. men. But even worse stuff, even like, you know, hitchhiking and having men, you know, like literally like tearing her clothes up, you know, but it's all told in this kind of like, because this, quote, unquote, this is what happens, this is what happens right. you know, like this was the life and this mm. is what it was. But with a with a shift of the dial, as you say, looking at it now, I was like, oh, my God, like these mm. were some really rough things. And, you know, probably a lot of it is like influenced by the education we've received for the last five years. Not that I didn't not that before that I was. <laughs> By any means, a rape apologist. No, I think I think it's about a. I think, well, I think this applies directly to culture. Um, you know, it's about changing a way, changing a collective way of seeing, mm-hmm. and that's part of the huge, powerful effect on the culture. I mean, yeah. Vincent, can you think of any, you know, Me Too works that particularly struck you? Well, so for, so for me, and you know, all of this makes me wonder, you know, exactly what qualifies. But for me, what I think yeah. about is uh, one of my favorite television shows of the last couple of years, which is um, I May Destroy You, yeah. which is mm-hmm. written, I believe, in part directed, also starring the very talented Michaela Cole. And, and this was 20, 2020, I think. 2020. Yeah. It's about, you know, a black woman in London who um, we see in the first episode, her being sexual assaulted. She's out. She's, you know, under deadline. She's a writer. She's decided she's going to go out instead of work on her work. Um, and she's in a sort of club environment and in a bathroom, something horrible happens to her. And the rest of the show is in some ways um, the afterlife of that event. Yes. And it's so it, it's when you were talk, just talking about that memoir, Nomi, it reminded me that like one way that it's changed my reading is that I too noticed those moments in, in texts that I have loved for other reasons before. Mm-hmm. And then it makes me wonder, like, oh, so the later thing that happens to them, am I supposed to understand this person as, a, in some ways, like a, traumatized per- a traumatized person? Yeah. Our, our uh, great colleague, Parl Sagal, has a, yes. had a great essay talking about yeah. the trauma plot in, yeah. in, in specifically literature. You're talking about Parl Sagal, a fellow critic at The New Yorker. Yes, yes, exactly. But it makes me, I, I think it has, in some ways, subtly tweaked my approach to characters in dramas, television shows, how I think, see a, a person later on. Because I may, I may Destroy You for sure is like a treatise on yeah, trauma. like self-consciously it, so. How yeah. it changes mm-hmm. character. And, it, and it, there are moments when like Michaela Cole's character is like being an asshole in a way that we like are meant to be like, okay, so do we do we give this all to this event? Or do we? is it about someone who's like wasn't perfect before? It's it, all these questions sure. about how do we then – take somebody's agency into account? How do we think of them as a, a person, a subject, yeah. and also take into account something that's happened to them? And the assault, you recall? The thing in my head. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't, because now you're, you're calling it something that I never, I never said that. Do you see anyone else? Where? In this memory. 
No, you, you can't call it a memory. Okay, other than the man in the... In my head, who may not even be real because I'm the person that can actually see it and I'm not sure, so I should probably pay attention to that. Yes. Yeah, because we don't know. That's a very big thing to assume. I'm just saying that we should refrain from talking about things like their facts and we should, we should probably just be careful. Okay. The man. What I really loved about I May Destroy You is how totally inconsistent the yes. characters' responses right. are yes. to the event that's happened, which is also reflected in the direction of the show. I mean, Vincent, you say we see the assault. I actually think you don't see it in my memory in the first episode. Not in the first oh, episode. We see flashbacks of it flashbacks later on. Flashbacks later, right. later on. That's correct. But I, and it's the flash- to- I mean, by the way, a flashback is totally like a thing of like – in some ways, ideological about what it is to remember. You know. Yes, anyway, exactly. Yeah. And it's not totally clear. I think she doesn't. I mean, I think the suggestion is, if I recall, is that she doesn't totally know exactly what happened. Like in the first episode, right. she, she, she knows something is because right. she's yeah. taking drugs. And I'm only nitpicking with you, no, not to be Pick. not Pick. to be crazily pedantic. Um, it but, matters. But well, one reason I think it matters is because what comes into that blank space where memory fails. You know, this is again. I'm I'm clearly obsessed with my idea of me too as a lens. But this is where this is where um, so many different things can come in. Oh, it was nothing. Um, probably making it up. But I think that one really interesting piece of the show was just r- reckoning with what could have happened based on different templates of of what we know the possibilities to be. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, oh, it's no big deal. It happens to everyone. Oh, it's a huge deal. This is a moment when you have to speak your truth. Yeah. I feel like that show really reckoned with those things, especially in um, an episode that comes later in the show where so many people have turned to the character of Arabella as a kind of avatar for their own experience. Yeah. Right. And it's, um, you know, you can understand why people want to do that, why the general public wants to go on social media or uh, accost this person in the street and say, you're my hero, et cetera. But it's too much also for one person to handle. Absolutely. And um, that I thought was really beautifully shown, how th- – a, a collective experience, something like Me Too, mm-hmm. can make you feel uh, empowered. You know, the, when you talk about Toronto Burke, that was, of course, the point of the phrase Me Too in the beginning to say, yes, I've been this through this as well. Me. This has happened to me as well. You're not alone. But it implies a collective. But it implies a collective. And what if you can't totally fit yourself into that And a collective? kind of template. Exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, the best works of culture coming out of Me Too want to take a really granular look at that as opposed to just slap a kind of trauma label on something and say, this is the experience of trauma. A hundred percent. And I think it's also, that's why, um, like, an essay like Parle's or, you know, um, this, which is a work of criticism or, you know, works which, as you say, are more granular, ambivalent, um, you know, particular about kind of trying to parse out what it means to undergo an experience like that. Um, I feel like couldn't couldn't have come immediately in the wake of of me too because then the just the the, the political import of what was happening was just too it was too hot, you know it it was too um, close to the bone. I, I think it we needed. A couple years at least to sort of reach the point where we could be like, okay, this is very important what has happened here. This lens to look at things is very important. 
But now let's look at art and let's see how human experience depicted in art maps or doesn't map on to the political aims of this larger movement. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's really tough when you talk about art because the moment something happens in the political world and art jumps in. I remember that Between the World and Me, for example, Ta-Nehisi Coates' mm-hmm. book came out. It was rushed out. Its pub date was kind of famously pushed up uh, to July of 2015. It was just in the wake of the uh, the mass shooting at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. The thing is that art also is beating commerce at this moment of sort of we need stories to fit this sure. template, you sure. know, and a, a flattening does occur, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do need these correctives to say, okay, um, the real people to whom things happen um, don't fit so many of our story templates and don't fit so many of our um discourse arguments and even don't fit into the the very real political arguments that then yeah. ensue that. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's always this, I think, mostly healthy, mostly productive, mostly generative back and forth between sort of the imperatives of the moment, mm-hmm. um, a certain blankly reflective kind of attempt to yeah. get something down that is parallel to the moment and then a, yeah. then a step back and say, okay, so, but what about but people, people? Yes, WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Ross Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Let me ask you guys about something that's kind of on my mind. Um... You know, Me Too happens. We get all these stories, stories from mostly women, not exclusively, who 
uh, have been very silenced in a very real way, often by non-disclosure agreements, by threats, etc. These stories come pouring out. And then, much as Isaac Newton, you know, told us there would be, there's Whoa. a ca- there's a counterforce. I'm going right back to the laws Whoa. of physics. Wow. I'm going right there. The science critics of the New Yorker. I'm going right there because, you know, I don't know much beyond that. Is this that. a science podcast? Uh, you know, I, I, could I tell you the three laws? Yeah, probably. But let's just, let's just talk about this one. I mean, for every force, there's a counterforce. That's right. Um, and so we get a different genre of story. And that genre of story is the story of the accused. Which, in my experience, culture-wise, has been irresistible for artists, which is someone who thought they were in a certain position of power and have fallen and what that experience is like for them. And that brings me to one of my favorite entries in the genre, which is Mary Gateskill's novella This is Pleasure, which came out in 2019, which deals with the experience of a publishing executive who has had what seem like blatantly, obviously inappropriate relationships, um, provocative, flirtatious, driven by a certain desire to uh, titillate and insult younger women in his workplace. Um, but the the weird moral and emotional gray area of how mm-hmm. he sees the situation and mm-hmm. how a female friend of his sees the situation too. Yeah, I, I love that story, the novella. I guess, because first it came out in the magazine, then it came out, I think, as a s- slim volume. A pleasingly slim. A pleasingly <laughs> slim volume. There's nothing I love more than a pleasingly slim volume that yeah. can just go into a pocket. And yes. I, when This Is Pleasure came out, and I remember reading it and thinking, maybe Mary Gaithgill is the only person I'll trust on this and who has, like, the balls to publish something from the perspective of this sort of like semi-repellent, semi-charming man in the wake of Me Too. And to me, I, I felt like it was a the room was suddenly filled with air. I was like, okay, we can we can talk about this. We can have this perspective. It's not a laudable perspective. But she's also saying the lens is, has has changed things for people, the way people mm-hmm. used to behave counted as one thing and now it counts as another thing and here is a man who was kind of caught in the midst and there are people like that and it's interesting to look at their lives because it's a real thing one thing that that story really illuminates for me and this and so with the rise of the me too story there has also risen an archetype i think of the woman Roughly of the same age as the the me tooed man mm-hmm. who observes it with the mores of the old old ways, not the new ways. Yes. Interesting. Who is like sort of like galled by the sensitivity of these young women. So there's all these weird moments where like where the the narrator of This Is Pleasure has like can I read like one line? Yes, we'll, we'll so- explain a bit. Just set us up a bit and explain who the narrator is. Because there are two narrators. It goes between the man's perspective. And his female friend. And his female friend. Yes. Who's about his age. Who's about his age. Right. And she, the the female narrator, is a sort of witness to his many inappropriatenesses. After, at the beginning, sort of being... And she's the target of one of them The target of one early on. um, And has, like, sort of integrated this into her understanding of him without Mm -hmm. developing any sort of, like, condemning feeling, I guess. Is is that... Definitely. Fair? I think that's right. Yeah. 
There are so many funny or awful stories that it's hard to stop telling them. Uh, funny or awful, right? Mm-hmm. The 19-year-old who texted him every time she, A, took a shit, or B, had sex with her boyfriend. The girl who texted him to describe her fantasies every time she masturbated. On and on and on. Mm-hmm. So here's a person who is, um, I, I, get, I, I guess to take the sort of trauma lens, like remembers these things minutely, remembers them for a reason, is telling them to us for a reason, mm-hmm. but also is telling them to us as a kind of, Slapstick, right? Kind mm-hmm. of in another with another valence. So there's this all this weird stuff through this observer character. She's been a witness to her friend's behavior for years, and that's what she's recounting here. Right. The the stuff that he asked for or or um, imposed on these younger women. Yeah. I mean, right. That dichotomy between yeah. The, it's like oh him, you know. But it's also like I remember all of them because it it was fucked up. Yeah, I think you're so right to point out that very fascinating figure of um, the woman who is friends with the man. And, um, you know, one thing that happens is she recalls – and her own, her own perspective has been totally destabilized by his fall, which is mm-hmm. part of what makes the yeah. um, the novella so fascinating, that she ha- she now has occasion, not through something that happened to her in his um, – triggered new reactions, but through something that has happened to him, which is that his behavior has been called out as piggish, which I think all of us reading it would be like, yeah, that's pretty objectively bad. Yeah. Right. Um, she has to reconsider her own role and also her feelings about herself. There's a moment she recounts when she first met uh, the publishing executive and he tested her, basically. he put They were out at some meal and he put his hand on her thigh and moved it up and she puts her hand in his face and she says no. And he never did it again. And her feeling is a bit, well, I was able to assert myself. That's yeah. how it's done. That's part of the deal. This is part of the compact. Um, you Men know, will try. You have to be strong. Put a and, line in the sense. And, yeah, and, yeah. This, and this was a perspective that um, started to come up in polemical, not fictional form with people like, um, you know, Laura Kipnis and uh, Katie Royfe. And, you know, you have to be able to assert yourself part of part of growing From up, part of being. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that leaves completely uh, leaves leaves uh, leaves un- <laughs> <laughs> unquestioned all the behaviors and assumptions that lead up to that moment, which I think is part of in its most idealistic form, what Me Too wants to change. Sure. Um, I dare say that this is a perfect transition for us uh, yes. to move to one of the current works on the table that comes seems to come right out of the Me Too movement and to be talking to where we are with it or aren't with it five years in, which is the movie Tar starring Kate Blanchett and directed Tar, by Todd Field. Yeah. I had heard buzz around Tar but I didn't know anything about what it was about. You know, there are these rather impressive posters all around the city showing Kate Blanchett <laughs> leaning back in ecstasy as she conducts an orchestra. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. And then it was like, oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. This is a story about a me too woman, like a woman who's been in a position of power and is called out. Right. Whoa, 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 whoa. So we've all gone to see it in the past few days. That's right. Um, yep. You know, Vince and I even were at the same. We were at the same, same showing with several other New Yorker people. Yes. Quite, really? Quite yes. the scene. I where did you see it at well, Bam? At Bam, I, I saw it at Bam last night. I will just say we didn't sit together simply because we prefer, and I think this is wonderful, and just in a metaphorical, literal sense, different perspectives on the screen. It's true. Oh, yes. what what are the perspectives? I like I like the fourth row, fourth or fifth row. Okay, Alex. I will leave a theater if I can't sit in the back half. 
I will really? I will not go. I will leave. I will leave. I will simply leave. I must be in the center and up towards the back because I have to I can't be looking up at the screen in any fashion. Mm. Interesting. I've got to be meeting it head on. Interesting. I like to feel like I'm in it. I like to be able to see images and not even see the edge of the screen. Okay. So <laughs> let, let's get a summary going. Yes. Let's for anyone who has who wants who wants to just dive right in and give us a little synopsis of Tar. I could I, I can do it. I know me, know me fry up. Okay. Lydia Tar, played by Kate Blanchett. Uh Beautiful, um, impeccably dressed, impeccably dressed, extremely accomplished, um, lesbian yeah. <laughs> conductor. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's an interesting first down <laughs> to, to slap on. And so, and she is the the movie opens. You know, we we are forced to plug the New Yorker. Um, the movie opens. And this one isn't our fault. It's yeah. not our fault. This it's just is. part of the movie. The movie opens with an interview on stage conducted with this fictional uh, character, Lydia Tarr. Uh, her interlocutor is our colleague, Adam Gopnik. It is uh, some form of festival. Uh, I don't think it's the New Yorker festival. <laughs> it, se- it's- I, it seems to resemble the New Yorker festival, um, you know, in – well – it's it's I think it is intended to be the New Yorker Festival. Perhaps the New Yorker <laughs> Festival plus the 92nd Street Y. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now my left hand it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real time, making the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. She is the maestro at the Berlin Philharmonic. She has just written a book that's about to come out, a memoir, Tar on Tar. Tar. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like a parody of accomplishment, of sort of high middlebrow accomplishment. Please. Yes. Please, 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 you must watch. Das ist ganz frei hier. Okay? It's got to be like a, just one person singing their heart out. She is extremely overly, one would say, confident, self-assured, mm-hmm. domineering, charismatic. And little by little, however, we start to understand um, that she might have done some things which aren't completely on the level in her life. Namely, there are hints of, you know, kind of increasing in force that a former pr- protege of hers that she probably had an affair with, ended up committing suicide after kind of becoming embroiled and obsessed and being rejected by her, by Tar. And and, uh, and more than being rejected, mm-hmm. we see that um, Tar has sent emails to the conductors and the leaders of every possible orchestra or music ensemble where this um, young woman, Krista, has applied for a job saying she's not mentally stable. She shouldn't. uh, Mm -hmm. She's blocked her career actively. And we Mm -hmm. see that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've I've spent a lot of time since seeing it just thinking about the gesture of having Lydia uh, Tar be a woman. So what do you think about that? Well, so first of all, the title, Tar. It's like Herzog, Ravelstein, Henderson the Rain. I, oh, I just kept on thinking about— We're going about, to the Bellow Cannon. Like, I love it's like, it. It's like, it's, like, it's like the sort of male Bellow protagonist questing, often lecherous, in the end, in one way or another, unstable, male, unstoppable— um, can't stop until stopped by mm-hmm. either external forces or or God or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, to have a woman in that mm. in that place and a woman who not just because of her sexual orientation, she's she is a lesbian, but because of her self-presentation, she's like, we see her, we see her having a suit cut for her. Like every all of her signifiers, at one point she calls herself a U-Haul lesbian. All of her signifiers are like she identifies herself to uh, a, a bully, a bullying schoolmate of her daughter as her daughter's father. I'm mm-hmm. I'm Petra's father in German. Yes, yeah. Um, which is like the 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 sort of the moment that we get to see her like you know mm-hmm. her her wrath uh, her revealed through this like slipping of a mask. Mm-hmm. All of these like very mask signifiers. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I think. The logic is to um, by even though like it doesn't really desex the dynamic because of, of everything I've just said, but it like takes men off the table, right? So what whatever you think about this parable, um, Todd Field says whatever you think about this parable, I'm not going to let you. To our point about like flattening templates. Yeah. I'm not going to allow it to to live in that. Yeah. Or at least I'm going to flirt with it, but I'm not going to leave it to that um, alone. I Just just the gesture there. We're taking away like, the story of the powerful man and the weak woman. We're right. mixing it up so that you have to see these – you have to see this character as a person. Right. It's right? pure Is that what power. Yeah, I mean I think it, so. it, it defamiliarizes, you know. It defamiliarizes the story that now five years into, you know, post Me Too – Arguably, some people will like, will be like, okay, yada yada. Like we've seen this. It's like, oh, we're gonna like flip the script, and mm-hmm. we'll show you how this is about power. So, you know, one question I think we need to ask about a movie like Tar and, and other movies that are coming out. You know, where does art intersect with? politics. You know, of course, I think the three of us are a little bit like probably aligned, maybe I'm wrong, mm. on the idea that art does its own thing. Art goes its own way. Art has no obligation and probably the antithesis of an obligation to support a given movement. I mean, Nomi, I'm thinking about something you said earlier in the episode when we were talking about um, This is Pleasure, the Mary Gateskill novella, mm. and you said that it felt like a breath of fresh air, and I totally agree with you. Yeah. And one thing that reflects to me is how interesting it is that the Me Too template became so widely accepted. And so suddenly there was this sense of, well, we need to hear the stories we haven't heard before, which because there were so many of them quickly became the story. And so anything that went in a different direction or pushed against Mm -hmm. the brain with more Mm -hmm. nuance or subtlety felt super refreshing. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think that even something like Tar shows – there's this sense of, oh, well, me too, of course, it happened. Yes, you know, this is yeah, – naturally, this is the world we're living in. But, you know, Tar herself doesn't totally feel accountable in that world or, you know, and women have – are not only far from achieving equal rights and power with men in this country but in some ways are 
farther uh, right. than than they were, I think, when me when Me Too began. It's like as a narrative template, it seems so familiar, but also um, it's it, it may still have a lot to teach us or to guide us with. Def- definitely, and and you know, we should hasten to say that. For all our discussions about like, okay, five years after the fact, where are we? Are we done with it? You know, like, you know, we're living in a world in which women's rights are impinged upon, like, as you said, more than they were five years ago. And so what is the role of art in that? As we said, it's complicated. My my concern is almost not that art takes on too political a meaning, but that politics comes to seem um, too attached to a certain storyline. Um, you know, that the stories we hear, the the actual stories of people, the real stories of what happens, the way that power operates, the way that sex operates, start to seem predictable as a plot line, that mm-hmm. we almost start to totally. get it backwards so that it leads to a certain sense of cliche, mm-hmm. repetitiveness, and we've fatigue, heard it before, fatigue. fatigue. And so, you know, the art continues to be productive and uh, interesting I'm worried that the politics becomes like flattened into art cliche. Right, right. Like we all given X politics. Yeah, we've heard it before. We've Not seen bad. that movie. Right. We've read that book. We're we're done. Which with is that how we now. turn to fascism because it seems exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, novelty, <Sorry>. novelty. <laughs> it's like I think we are aligned, Alex, about sort of the criterion of art being on a deep level different from any criterion that we can get from politics, but the their interplay, I think, is um, something like political happenings, especially the deepest and most lasting ones, kick up, as you've been saying, new lenses, new truths about people. They give us new way to see people and new things to know about human beings. Art can only grab those but then bring them into settings that help us play out those truths, right? And so the I think the only way to evaluate any of these things will be to say um, – what do we do with this new knowledge that we have? Not just spit it back at each other, but say, and and then and then what? And then what? We'll have to wait and see. And then what? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, it's... Nomi and Vincent. Thank you, Thank you. Alex. Thank you, Vincent. That was Vincent Cunningham, Nomi Fry, and Alexandra Schwartz on a special episode of our podcast. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Thanks so much for joining us. This episode was produced with special production assistance from Alex Barish, Rhiannon Corby, and Stephen Valentino. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. WNYC Studios is supported by This is Uncomfortable, a podcast for Marketplace. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. 
This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.